Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about summer art classes and workshops for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Judith Valente, author of How to Be. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my spiritual conversations with Brother Paul Quinnen. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. We're listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Patsy Takimoto Mink blazed a trail, denied a place in medical school because there were already enough women in the school. She instead became a lawyer and a legislator who would go on to co-author the Equality in Education Act, better known to us as Title IX, in order to ensure the doors would be open for others. She advocated for civil rights, and while there are so many areas of discrimination she fought against, today we spotlight the advances in athletics and the inequities that still exist. To help us do that, we welcome Lois Mannon and Wookie Kim as guests in our studio today. Lois Mannon is currently Associate Athletics Director at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She was there at the ceremony at Mink Statue. And Wookie Kim joins us today because the American Civil Liberties Union of Hawaii is still in an active fight with Hawaii Department of Education. So welcome to both of you. Uh, thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, we, we appreciate you carving time for this very important commemoration. And, you know, what I'd like to do is start out with the ceremony that was held in Washington, D.C. Senator Maisie Hirono was there to do the honors at the unveiling of Patsy Mink's portrait at the Capitol. She fought to make sure that no other woman was ever told no simply because of gender. Fifty years later, Title IX is just as important today as it was when Patsy fought for it. Thanks to Title IX, more women than ever before are leading in government, business, and of course, in medicine. But while we have come a long way since Patsy was rejected from medical school because of a gender, of course, we still have a way to go for a true equity. And we need to strengthen Title IX and protect the rights of every student to a welcoming and supportive school environment. I'm so glad that visitors to our nation's capital will be able to learn more about Patsy and her many accomplishments. And that was a ceremony uh, in our nation's capital at the unveiling of a portrait of uh, Congresswoman Patsy Mink. And Lois, you know, you were an athlete, right? And you, you were in if you softball. Say so. <laughs> and you had a long career in athletics. You were at the Aloha Stadium and you're you know, back at UH. Um, what does this state mean to you? Well, you know, for me, I'm a direct beneficiary of, of Title IX in so many different ways. As a student athlete, I don't know that I would have taken the same path if it wasn't for the opportunity to play softball at the collegiate level because I didn't think that that was a reality. So when you ask me what it means to me, it means so much. I would be in such a different place and maybe even if in a different profession and, a, and even maybe even a different mindset if it wasn't for this legislation. So it's made a big, huge impact on my life. Yeah, I mean, it made me think back to my college days, and I was on the first crew team my freshman year, and, and we had a coach, uh, Marlo Wong, who was was on the team over at Berkeley, you know, and I just think back to those days and uh, just remarkable, the, the foundation that Patsy Mink and others laid for all of us. And, and Wookie, you know, as the legal director of the ACLU, ACLU has been involved in many fights, <laughs> you know, dealing with discrimination. What do you think about this anniversary? Well, I mean, I think it is an important moment to both reflect on 
the past and everything, the foundation that Representative Mink set, and then also to reflect on the present and the future and to recognize and acknowledge that we still have a long, long way to go. And I'm sure we'll, we'll be talking a little bit about that today. Yeah, well, you know, Patsy Mink's daughter, Wendy, uh, she was in Washington, D.C. for the unveiling of that portrait of her mom. She published a biography of her mother. It's called Fierce and Fearless, Patsy Takimoto Mink, First Woman of Color in Congress. Uh, The book was released in May uh, and uh, was co-authored with Judy Wu. Uh, Mink reflected that there has been progress, but we have still far to go. There's evidence of great strides in the expansion of women's athletic activities, in the expansion in the numbers of women in law schools and medical schools, in the very slow but moving in the right direction integration of the workplace in what used to be referred to as men's jobs and that sort of thing as a result of gender equity and skills training or attempts to enforce that. But there are so many ways in which lack of equity pervades the educational experience that my mother's call for vigilance in 2002 on the 30th anniversary remains the call that we need to remember today. There are still lots of manifestations of inequality, lots of roadblocks to equity in the schools, but we do have Title IX, which is a powerful lever for redressing those problems. The issue really is that everybody needs to know that Title IX is out there. Everybody needs to know how to access its potential in pursuing complaints and raising issues and the like, and we need to enforce the pledge of equity in education for everyone equally at all levels of schooling. And, you know, today the U.S. Department of Education announced that it is preparing to strengthen Title IX. You know, there are areas that have been weakened over the last 50 years, and they're committed to writing new rules, you know, just to make sure that this law stands and uh, provides equity for all. And, and Wookie, if you can talk about the lawsuit that was filed against the Department of Education, because we didn't have equity at Campbell High School. Sure. So just in a nutshell, this lawsuit is about holding the Hawaii DOE accountable for failing to treat girls in Hawaii public schools equally to boys when it comes to sports, and also about giving them equal opportunities. And so in other words, this is a lawsuit about challenging the boys first mindset that dominates DOE's decision making. And the focus of the lawsuit is Campbell High School in Eva Beach, which is the largest public high school in Hawaii. But these issues exist at practically every other school. It's a universal problem that our school system is not in compliance with Title IX. As far as how the lawsuit came about, In early 2018, Civil Beat published a shocking story, and that story documented young women's experience at Campbell High School. And some of the facts that came to light included that Campbell had athletic locker room facilities for boys, but nothing for girls. And what did that actually look like? It meant that while boys had showers, bathrooms, lockers, team rooms, you know, everything that you think of when you think of a locker room— The girls had nothing. So girls who played sports, it turned out that they had to change in teachers' closets, underneath the bleachers by the fields, and even in the bathrooms at the Burger King, three-quarters of a mile away. So that's what we learned, and we were shocked because, of course, at the time, that was 40-some years after Title IX had passed, and we had not known about this issue And so we began investigating DOE's decision-making, specifically around athletic facilities. And as some may know, Title IX is about more than just facilities. But we began by just focusing on the facilities. And what we learned was that of Hawaii's over 50 public high schools, 14 schools were in the same situation as Campbell. They had athletic locker room facilities for boys, but none for girls. Lois, you're hearing this. What are you thinking? What's going through your mind? Well, I think it's sad. It's sad because here we are 50 years later, right? But to me, I mean, Patsy Mink set the tone. She set the legislation, and she did that. But it's our job to enforce the legislation, right? So we need more enforcers. We need more voices to talk about 
to go to your athletic department or your principal or whoever it might be to say, hey, how do we get to what the boys have? It doesn't always have to end up in a lawsuit or nasty or in a court. It doesn't always have to be ugly, right, or get to this point. But if we have more voices early on and having the conversation rather than the accusations or anything like that, then maybe we can do more for our girls. You know, and I was just thinking back to my high school experience, but I, I went to an all-girls school, so, you know, there wasn't an issue of equity in that. But, I mean, in your high school experience, did you have... I went to Kaiser High School, and I I didn't really experience... I don't really remember any kind of inequity. true inequity that I can point back to, but, but I know it was probably there. Yeah. And so, Wookie, you, you said that in all these schools you found in your research that, yeah, there wasn't parity. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we began digging into the documents. And at the time, DOE had prepared a statewide athletics master plan. And that plan inventoried and evaluated it, its existing athletic facilities at every school. And what we learned was that time and again, DOE was prioritizing boys at the expense of girls. And let me just give you one anecdote, because for each school, the master plan included a, quote, recommendations list and a, quote, wish list. And what we noticed was that at several schools, DOE was recommending that certain boys' facilities be upgraded before girls even had a facility at all. And so the most stunning example was at one high school. The number one recommendation was, quote, upgrade baseball field to a playoff condition field. Meanwhile, the very last item on the, quote, wish list was girls' athletic locker room and weight room. So, you know, th this was stunning to, to read, and, and I think it shows that the patriarchy, the male-dominated mindset, was baked into the decision-making process, at least when it came to facilities, and that raised serious red flags. So uh, systemic inequality. Yes, Exactly. And so, gosh, you know, uh, I know you represented a number of the students at the time, and I was there at the Patsy Mink statue when you, when, uh, you folks announced that you were filing this lawsuit against the DOE. Uh, I remember that day, and years have passed. We were able to talk to one of your clients yesterday. She will be a senior at the University of Hawaii this fall. So it's been four years, four years since that legal challenge was filed. Uh, Ashley Badis, uh, she is grateful for the efforts of Patsy Mink and the others who champion the cause. As she sees now, this fight has not been easy. really want things to change for future generations. You know, at the time that we filed the lawsuit, I was a senior, so I, did, I knew I wasn't going to directly benefit from this lawsuit, but I really wanted things to be better for the younger girls. You know, my sister at the time was an incoming freshman, and she was going to play the same sports that I did, so I didn't want her or any of the other girls to have to go through the same things that um, me and my team did at the time. And Ashley uh, was a water polo player, and her little sister just graduated from high school last month. Yes. So gosh, I mean that just kind of kind of broke my heart when I heard that when I realized how much time had passed. Yeah, and that's why, you know, really the kudos go to the brave families and the brave young women who came forward because things were happening in parallel. We actually began negotiations with the DOE. You know, we sent a letter to the superintendent uh, explaining that their plan was very problematic and that they needed to address the facilities issue immediately. And meanwhile, you know, one of the biggest excuses that is given to not comply with Title IX is funding, budget funding. We don't have the money. Uh, but, but that excuse is not valid either because time and again what we see and what that anecdote I gave shows is that when money exists, it still is flowing first to the boys and often not at all to the girls. Um, so what we insisted in our letter was that DOE, assuming construction takes a while, and, and it, of course, it's, very, it's a very challenging process, but that DOE needed to commit to coming up with a plan where existing facilities could be used equally, equitably, fairly, meaning if there's a quote-unquote boys athletic locker facility, figure out a way to alternate the use of that facility. 
you know, figure out some other way so that girls and boys are on sort of the level playing field when it comes to facilities access. But as a result of this, we were doing that separately. But meanwhile, we heard from several families that were raising separate concerns about their treatment at Campbell High School. And, and maybe it was a coincidence, maybe it wasn't. I mean, I think a lot of credit goes to Civil Beat and Suvan Lee, who is the reporter who broke the story, because it generated conversation. And basically, these parents realized, oh my gosh, what's happening is clearly a Title IX violation, and we're being retaliated against by the school administrators. So they reached out to us, and I'm not going to go into the details of our conversations because that's Mm -hmm. attorney-client privileged information, but that then led to a much more comprehensive investigation into Campbell High School's entire athletics program, and we noticed that across the board, on every factor that you evaluate for Title IX compliance, Campbell was seriously behind. And, And so we then put together all of our facts and filed a lawsuit because, you know, quite frankly, the department was not willing to work with us. And you we, tried. We tried, yeah. of course. Okay. I mean, we several months, if yeah. not a year. Well, if you're just joining us, this is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We'll be right back after a break. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, with artworks and home furnishings that reflect the life and colors of the islands. Featuring Annie Sloan chalk paint, shipping available. Magnolia-Hawaii.com On the next Fresh Air, what drives flight attendants crazy? T.J. Newman talks about her family profession. Her mother and sister were flight attendants, and Newman's 10 years in the air informed her debut novel, Falling, a best-selling thriller about a hijacked plane. She wrote much of her book on overnight flights. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Well, if you're just joining us, this is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Our guests in our studio, ACLU's legal director, Wookie Kim, and UH athletic director, Lois Mannon. We are talking about the 50th anniversary of the uh, Equity in Education Act, which was uh, co-authored by Congresswoman Patsy Mink. Uh, and, uh, you know, Wookie, so, uh, so much time has passed. You know, you took this to court, you challenged the situation, uh, and there was just uh, something recent. Uh, This case hasn't been resolved, and it involves uh, getting certified as a class action lawsuit. So tell us about that. Sure. So when we originally filed the lawsuit, we filed it as a putative class action, meaning we wanted it to become a class action. And I don't want to bore you with all the legal jargon and technicalities, but there are certain requirements that have to be met before a court can certify a lawsuit as a class action. And in short, the district court here did not grant us class certification, and we then appealed that decision to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And just a couple months ago in April, the Ninth Circuit reversed the decision to deny class certification. And we're now back at that stage. And there's one minor technical issue that needs to be resolved. And and hopefully that will be resolved uh, in the coming weeks. Okay. Uh, You know, Lois, I guess as as we think about this, you know, this is lower education 50 years later, and we are still having to fight. But I guess when we stop to think about what we're doing in higher ed, there were doors that were open, thanks to people like Donis Thompson and Patsy Mink. So in your time at UH, I mean, what have you seen? People like Donis Thompson, Marilyn Moniz, have kind of paved the way. Donis and Patsy were the pioneers, right? They fought and fought and fought and scratched and clawed and, and got the legislation passed. And then Donis came in and kind of kind of laid down the law and worked with Patsy. But then, then Marilyn came in, and she was one of the main enforcers for for lack of a better term <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> i don't mean to make it you know negative but but she came in and and she she fought in her own way too to add women's sports to comply 
to, to force the university to comply with the gender equity in the Title IX legislation. Since we started, she, she added beach volleyball. She was very instrumental in adding the beach volleyball program, the track program coming back, the women's track program coming back, adding uh, Wahine soccer to the mix. So adding sports, we've also done lately in the last, you know, six, seven years, we've, we've done a lot of capital improvement projects that are, were geared towards women. We replaced the track for the women's track team, about $2.5 million. We renovated the Wahine softball field. Uh, we made it into a turf field, mostly. We've added a locker room there pretty recently, and also uh, coaches' offices over there to kind of make it like the baseball stadium, the coaches' offices are there, and they 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 have their own kind of domain over there. And softball now has their own domain uh, with their field, and and they can kind of run things out of there. We we've also had some mutual beneficial projects that that went on that both benefit both men and women. We've done repair and maintenance on our our swimming pool, our diving well. We resurfaced the tennis courts because we have men's and women's tennis. We have men's and women's swimming. And then the biggest one was the, the renovation of our, our practice gyms. Uh, we, have, we call it Gym 1 and Gym 2, and Gym 1 is used mostly by the men's and women's volleyball team, and Gym 2 is used mostly by the men's and women's basketball team. So both of them went through a $10.5 million renovation, and, and they're probably the best in the Big West. And then... Refresh my memory. I mean, were there legal tussles <laughs> along the way? No. I'm, you know, as an administration, we we try to incorporate the legislation and the equity into just about every decision that we make. So it's it's it hasn't been a real struggle, to be honest. It's actually been just kind of remaining aware of where we're at and tracking where are we at. So how much have we spent on the men? Right in the last five years, in in terms of capital improvement, and you know what do, what do the women need? What can we do for the women? And to to, to kind of just merge us into this equal place, the space that we can we can um, operate in. And so it's it's not always fair is not always equal, but it's always moving in that direction. It's been uplifting, to be honest. And you've worked alongside uh, Marilyn Moniz. Uh, we we did talk with her earlier. She's traveling uh, now, but you know she was a former volleyball standout and a university Hawaii athletic administrator. And uh, she shared what uh, Title IX, uh, what effect it had on her life. I was down the road here at Kaimiki High School. I have made 18 years old in April. Roe versus Wade had just passed in February. Watergate was happening. And President Richard Nixon signed Title IX into action June 23, 1972. In May, I graduated from high school. And I had played volleyball there for three years in a row with my other close, very close teammates. And we were in the gym and in comes walking. The University of Hawaii, very first volleyball coach, Alan Kang, set by the women's athletic director to put a volleyball team together for the University of Hawaii. First time along with a track program. And that was the beginning of the Rainbow Wahine Athletic Program. I had the sports experience. I got to play volleyball. I didn't know sitting at Kaimiki Gym in May I'd ever play volleyball competitively except for maybe club and local women national volleyball, not at a school anymore. But I got that privilege because of Patsy, her efforts, and Dr. Donis Thompson. So we have to remember that the medical school and the law school, when they started, Title IX was already in effect. They didn't have to labor to correct inequities for women. All those efforts started 50 years ago. So I got to go to the UH Law School, you know, and that was awesome because that set the career for me. I was a deputy prosecuting attorney in Maui. Then I went into Parks and Recreation. And then in 1989, came back to the university and walked in the footsteps of Dr. Donna Thompson because I was the third women's athletic director at the University of Hawaii. So I'm eternally grateful for that opportunity. I not only played, but I got to be an administrator at the university. And when I got there, we were already in Title IX violation. We already had an investigation in the late 70s and the early 80s. 
When I came in, I looked in the files and I educated myself. What is Title IX? Because I had done my law school paper on Title IX. I didn't know I'd ever become athletic administrator. It happened, and that's why I always say it was just part of my destiny, and I was in the right place, born at the right time, and went to the right high school and then college. Yeah, it's interesting when you stop and think about that, you know, all the gains that people made, you know, but there were struggles. And I don't know, Wookie, as you as you hear this and you hear what, you know, the university has done to make sure there's parity and you see that 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 hasn't really happened on the, on the lower ed. Yeah. So, you know, I think Marilyn's story is the perfect example of why Title IX is so important, because let's be real. Most young women don't go on to play collegiate athletics, right? That's such a small sliver of people. But most young girls are playing sports in K through 12. And so Title IX is not just about getting fit or, you know, having athletic opportunities. It's about basic life opportunities, right? So 3 million young women are playing high school sports, and they are getting the opportunities to build character, They're working on their teamwork, finding community, right? And so when you miss out on sports in high school because you're not being given equal opportunities, you're being robbed of your ability to succeed in life. And that's sort of why it's so important even at the K through 12 level. And, you know, the focus of Title IX litigation has been both at the high school level and and the collegiate level and I think there's, there, there are these questions of, you know, how early do we want to ensure that those opportunities are level? Because if you in middle school are already being pushed to the side, you know, that affects your, your self-belief too, right? If you're, if you're a young girl and you keep seeing that the boys get to go first, that the boys get the better practice facilities, that the boys get to travel to tournaments. So it's really, really critical. And so that's why we do this work because – you know, the ACLU is about fighting for the promise of equality. And, you know, we have a, a another uh, uh, soundbite from Marilyn Moniz just talking about the progress that has been made at the University of Hawaii. Uh, let's take a listen. We only had 98 Rainbow Wahine in 1989. By the time we finished, we had over 200 because the men had 260 already. So they would be equitable in their participation opportunities because access to the athletic program really is the most important thing. If you don't have access or the opportunity to play your sport, you don't have anything. You can't get scholarships. You can't travel. You can't vie for a championship. You don't have a team and things like that. So to me, the most important thing was to have the opportunity to play like I had. I was really fortunate to be there at the right place and the right time and people fighting for our opportunity to play. And what was your experience, Lois, you know, uh, when you played? Uh... You know, I, I I was just like Marilyn. I, I was fortunate enough to be able to have that opportunity. I don't, I, I guess I was born at, at the right time as well. But um, kind of going back to what Wookie said about at the the lower education level, K through 12, think about the girls that don't have opportunities, right? If they participate in sport and have the opportunity to participate in sport, they're learning about leadership. Like you said, leadership. They're, they're learning self-confidence. They're learning about teamwork and, and things like that. And if they didn't have that, think about what would they be doing? This is a time, this is a very critical time for young girls when they're trying to find themselves, Right? They're trying to figure out who they are. They're trying to develop self-confidence. They would be turning to drugs, alcohol. They would be followers. Right? They would be following people, not trying to lead people or learning how to lead people. They might be getting pregnant and, they're, they're, and, and taking, their life takes a, a different turn. So super important uh, legislation for, for opportunities at that level as well and then carry over into higher education. But going, going off of what, for me, you know, I don't, I don't think that I would have went away to college. Uh, I don't know if I would have finished college. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I was a decent student. I was an average student. I didn't have a lot of self-confidence. Um, but sports, participating in sports, because I was a, a better athlete than I was a student, participating in sports gave me relevance, gave me confidence. The only place that I felt comfortable in my own skin was when I was 
on the field. That's I got off the field and then then life hit right and it's like oh I I don't know if I want to go out socially I don't know if I want to call somebody I I don't I don't know, but if I was with my friends and my teammates, I was yeah let's go do this let's go do that yeah, you know you, that you feel very confident that confidence right? so that's kind of what it it did for me, and so uh, Wookie you know as uh, you know as you listen to. You know how fortunate a lot of our female athletes, you know, are to be able to participate in this. Yeah, I mean, just a, a lot of uh, or a number of your clients that you represented at, at Campbell High School have already graduated. Yes. Yeah, and so again, I think right th- this shows the dramatic impact that Title IX has had because before Title IX in the early 1970s, there were only 294,000 girls playing high school sports. Today, it's over 3.4 million, right? And so that means 10 times more, more young women are playing sports today than before Title IX. And Lois and Marilyn are all examples of this. And, and so that's why it's so important that we, we have to keep pushing because there are so many problems still. And I could, I could spend a long time talking you through all the examples of the present inequities that we've seen, but I'll pass it back to you. All right. Well, you know, uh, if you're just joining the conversation, we have been talking about Title IX as we mark the 50th anniversary. Uh, you can join our discussion. You can record uh, a, a story about Title IX that you might have, any personal stories. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can call uh, 792-8217. We'll be right back after a break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Health System, committed to caring for the community at its hospitals and clinics. Learn more at queens.org. Caitlin Tiffany says that stereotyping fans can miss why so many people join fandoms. If fandom isn't just about being like a screaming teenage girl, if there are all of these different groups that like don't conform to that, that helps you understand that like all fandom is more complicated. Caitlin on fandom and her new book, Everything I Need I Get From You, next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Our guests in our studio are UH Associate Athletic Director Lois Mannon and ACLU's Legal Director Wookie Kim. We're talking about the progress that we have made since the enactment of Title IX. And Wookie, you know, you have a lawsuit that is currently working its way through the court system. But what can you tell us, you know, nationally? I mean, are there a lot of lawsuits, you know, similar to yours? So Title IX litigation is not as common as you would expect, and particularly these days at the K through 12 level, they're much, much less frequent. You know, of course, there are many aspects of Title IX, and there have been a lot more lawsuits when it comes to sexual harassment and sexual assault, and generally speaking, in the you know higher education context. But I, I think that brings up an important point, which is that. Title IX is not a law that is self-enforcing, right? And as even Wendy Mink was saying, that it is a powerful lever, but it requires someone to enforce it. And a little-known fact is that even though this is a federal law, and even though we have a federal Department of Education and you know federal Department of Justice, there has never been a government-led lawsuit to enforce Title IX. At the same time, there has never been 
the withdrawal of federal funding from any institutions that have violated Title IX. Because just as a little bit of a legal background, Title IX actually only prohibits sex discrimination in educational institutions that receive federal funds. And so the threat, right, is that if you violate Title IX, the federal money is not going to come to you. This is important because basically most public high schools and many private schools receive federal funds and are therefore obligated to comply with Title IX. But what this means is, given that the federal government isn't stepping in, you need private people to enforce. And enforcement doesn't just mean filing a lawsuit, right? Everything that we talked about with a parent filing a complaint with the school, having a meeting with the principal and saying, hey, look, these are problems. Can you fix them? That is enforcement too, right? It's a less formal version of enforcement, but that's what we need, right? We need girls, their mothers, their fathers, their you know brothers, everyone. We need everyone to identify problems that exist and advocate within their local communities, whether it's at their school, whether it's at their local board meeting, neighborhood board meetings with their legislators, because that's the only way that we are actually going to get to true equity. When we talk about enforcers and folks like Marilyn Moniz, you know, I also think of Jim Nukawa, you know, you're shaking your head, Lois, because you know that, you know, she's passionate about equity and trying to fight discrimination. Passionate is, is not the word, Catherine, <laughs> for, for describing how Jill feels about all of this. I mean, she's been very vocal, very visible, very effective in getting and enforcing this law. And you asked me earlier about inequities while I was in high school. And Jill's a Kaiser High School graduate as well. Ah, okay. You know, so, but she was a little bit before me. But, you know, one of the things that I thought of while we were talking is we didn't have an on-campus softball field when I was playing. And... 20 years later, I was working at the university. Jill asked me to go to a meeting at Kaiser High School to meet with the athletic director and some others to figure out where they should put the softball field on campus. You know, and I, it just came to me afterwards, so just kind of bringing it up now. But so now, 20 years later, it was 20 years later, maybe more, but there is a softball field on campus. And that is because of Jill and her voice and her enforcement, right? Didn't go to court didn't have to do all that, but she got it done. So there are some things that are getting done, but the stuff that isn't getting done is ending up in the courts. You right. Know. You have to go in with a big stick right. <laughs> in right. order yes. to get things done. Well, you know, we salute a lot of our young women who are terrific athletes. You know, we talked recently to Carissa Chun. She was inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame uh, earlier this month. Among her accomplishments being Hawaii's Girls Wrestling State Champion in 1998. She's a four-time U.S. Open champion. She won the bronze medal at the London Olympics in 2012. And last November, she was named head coach of the University of Iowa's women's wrestling team, the first for a school in an NCAA Power Five conference. I've seen the sport girls' women's wrestling grow across the country, and it's still not there yet. You know, there's still a dozen or so states that haven't sanctioned girls wrestling in the U.S. But I will say people are watching, people are paying attention, and people are being more mindful about it. You know, like being at the University of Iowa, they are mindful about equity for women in athletics. The University of Iowa is building a brand new facility for wrestling, and that's a question I always get. Is your team going to be a part of that new facility? And the answer is yes, because they want it equitable among the men and the women, right? Like the opportunities are equal. We have equal amount of scholarships. We have equal amount of opportunities to have women come and wrestle. Can't speak for every program, but I feel that people are mindful about that as far as offering equal and equitable opportunities for young girls across the country here. I'm super grateful for it because... It's given me so much opportunity to continue wrestling and get an education. Had that not been around, I don't know where I would be today. You know, I don't know what opportunities would have been there for me to be able to pursue an education and athletic career, especially in wrestling. You know, I can remember, I just think and reflect on my kids' time in high school 
And I recall there was a lot of talk like, oh, you know, the girls, you try wrestling because there are not that many women, young women in that field, and you might have a shot at getting a scholarship for college. And so it's interesting to see how far she's come. And, you know, when you think of the other athletes, you know, we're talking Olympic athletes, you know, Carissa Moore with surfing. There were so many people that we can credit, soccer players. The big deal, of course, is uh, the big lawsuit that was brought to court over equity in the women's soccer team. I don't know. Well, Wiki, you want to talk about that, how amazing that was to see? Sure. I mean, I don't know the details of the lawsuit, but obviously it was a pay equity issue And my understanding is that that lawsuit settled and that now the women's team is going to be paid under the same schedule, same system as the men's team. So that is a great development. Yeah. And even with surfing, you know, I know the female surfers, you know, made a big deal about, okay, we're going to have the same kind of uh, money, purse money for the winners. I don't know. As you're watching, you know, our surfers compete. Yeah, I I don't know too much about that either, but. It would make sense, and it's across the board. I mean, golf, I would think, might be next. I don't know. (laughs) Right, and when we saw Michelle Wee, what she did for young people, and, you know, she was out there with the men early on in her teens. So it's remarkable when we can stop and reflect to see what incredible athletes have uh, come up to the national stage, to the international stage, and have found a place there. I think we can go back and we can credit you know, the opportunities that they had over the years. So, you know, Wookie, as we reflect on this time and you have this lawsuit that's still making its way, you know, in the courts, you know, talk about how much farther we need to go. Well, we have a long way to go. I will, we will give credit to the state and the DOE for making some improvements or starting to rectify some of the issues that we raised. But let me be clear. It's our belief that these changes were made in direct response to the filing of our lawsuit. So, you know, in short, at the time when we were negotiating with the DOE, we tried to understand what their current plans were to address Title IX issues in athletic facilities. And in a nutshell, there were some plans, but they were very limited. But then... Within a few months of our filing our lawsuit, the state funded facilities and improvements for 17 athletics facilities for girls, and that was in 2019. And just this year, I don't know when the decision was made, but the legislature funded $60 million over the next two years, specifically for girls' athletic facilities. And so two points. One is We acknowledge that that's progress, but it should not have taken a lawsuit to get there. And the other point is, Title IX involves much more than athletic locker rooms, right? I don't think we've had the chance to talk about it, but when it comes to equal treatment and benefits, the analysis looks at a whole host. It's called the laundry list, a whole host of factors. So you compare facilities, you compare equipment and supplies, the availability and the quality of coaching travel opportunities, and even media and publicity and promotion, right? And on all of these other factors or these other dimensions, I don't want to generalize, but at least at Campbell, we saw significant problems where, let me just give you a couple examples. The boys' football team, they were getting opportunities to travel to Las Vegas, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, They even went to Hawaii Island. During the off-season, you know, for exhibition, sort of enrichment-type programs. Meanwhile, Campbell was not sending some of its girls' sports teams to regular season tournaments that were on neighbor islands, right? And that, that sort of shows the disparity that existed when it came to travel opportunities. And it's just across the board. We analyzed, we did many interviews and did a lengthy investigation, and on every factor, at least at Campbell, there are serious problems. And so what happens with the lawsuit when it comes up? I mean, I know the bar for class action legal cases is high, and so you've got a lot of work to do, but you hope to then get an update from the DOE as to, you know, what exists now in the schools? Sure. So without going into too much detail, as soon as the court 
decides this class certification issue will basically, quote unquote, restart the lawsuit and engage in discussions with the DOE. And by the way, I forgot to mention, but one of the other defendants in the lawsuit is the Oahu Interscholastic Association because they run the leagues and the tournaments, and that also factors into the analysis as well. And what we were learning was that scheduling of the competitions and you know when games were being played. For example, Friday night is the prime game time, right? Because it's the end of the week. Families can come out. It's an exciting time. I don't remember the exact statistic, but boys' teams were getting something like three-quarters of the Friday evening time slots at Campbell. But anyways, we'll talk with DOE. We'll talk with OIA. We'll get some updates on what has happened over the last two years while the case has been effectively paused. And then we'll go from there, and we'll see where things go. That's interesting to me. So I don't know, Lois, I don't know if, what you can pull from your experience. Talk about these associations. I can, a couple of things. One is, and it ties directly into leading up to the higher education level. You talked about the travel and the football, the boys getting to go on these trips and the girls not. Travel costs money, right? How do you raise money? Fundraising is a big thing where even at the collegiate level, it's more difficult for the women to raise money than it is for the men because the men have this long-standing history of winning championships and competing and opportunities and all that. The women just are trying to play catch-up. So what we've actually done this year using the 50th anniversary as a fundraising opportunity for the women. So we have actually compiled three things that we're going to do. We're going to do a day of giving on September 1st, and all the money is going to go to health and wellness of our Wahine athletes, solely our Wahine athletes, because we are also celebrating the 50th anniversary of Wahine athletics, not just Title IX. We started Rainbow Wahine Athletics, or Donis did, in 1972 as well, Wahine Volleyball and Track. So September 1st marks the first home game of the Wahine Volleyball season. And we're going to do a day of giving on the first day of every year of the Wahine Volleyball season. And that's going to be publicized and everything that way, too. We're also going to do a field day with all of our women's sports, and all of our women's sports will be represented. That'll be on September 10th. All of our female sports, we're going to make it free to the public. We want to connect the community with our Wahine sports so that they can make a connection with our athletes, with our coaches, and learn what, especially the youth, right? What can they do? What can they accomplish? These are opportunities for you just to create that connection. And then to kind of wrap it all up, we're going to have a dinner gala on October 14th. And this is something that we've already gotten started. The business community has stepped up so graciously. There are so many companies that have stepped up. American Savings Bank, Bank of Hawaii, Hawaiian Electric, the Wolf Foundation, um, Alexander Baldwin, Matson, Queens Medical Center, Carissa Moore. You talked about mm-hmm. Carissa Moore. She is our honorary chair of this oh, event. Great. Yeah, so she is involved as well. And we're going to have a night of dinner. We have female chefs that are going to be cooking. Oh, sounds like a great event. For this. We're going to have Naleo Pilimehana, the all female group, performing. We're going to have the male student athletes serving at night. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you know, I love that. So, so it's going to be a really special evening. We we've sold about twenty two tables, and we're we're probably we're we're going to cap it at thirty. So we're we're pretty close to 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 getting that done. But we're so grateful for the companies that have stepped up. Uh, Foodland, Kathy and Stanford Carr. So very fortunate. We felt like it was an opportunity to help fundraise because the women struggle in that area. That that sounds like an amazing event. (laughs) I hope it's going to (laughs) be. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts as we uh, think about this incredible anniversary? I just want to make sure that, and I know everybody's talking about it, and Patsy's getting her due, and rightfully so, but this this woman has just changed the lives of so many people. Men men too, right? And then I think that's the next step, is we got to get male advocates because they have daughters, right? So we have to get more male advocates out there 
enforcers on the front line just to be able to make positive progress at lower school and, and higher education as well. And the goal, the goal would be, and this is something that I said before, but the goal would be to be able to just comply without being forced to comply, right? Let's just do it because it's the right thing to do, not because we have to. And Wookie, we thank you for being an advocate for, uh, you know, the women and the young, the young women that are being um, unfairly treated as we uh, think about this anniversary. But yeah, well, what else would you like to say? Well, I mean, I think what Lois was saying was so spot on that the burden cannot be carried alone by women and girls. And everyone has to play their part and do whatever they can to address this very serious problem that still exists despite the law being in place for 50 years. And of course, very grateful for Representative Mink's legacy and everything. And so I would encourage all the listeners to sort of think about, start with your own life. Reflect on what your experience was like in high school or in college. And think about, you know, were there things that I saw that now I'm realizing we're, we're unequal, right? And starting there, thinking about how it continues to exist in every setting in life, right? Because Title IX is about prohibiting sex discrimination in educational institutions. And athletics is one area where you see discrimination, but it's not the only area, right? You see discrimination in the workplace. You see discrimination everywhere, right? And so I think having those broader conversations are very, very important as well. All right. See something? Say something. We would like to thank our guests, Wookie Kim, Legal Director of the ACLU of Hawaii, and Lois Mannon of the University of Hawaii. And we thank you, the listener, for joining us on today's show. Have a comment to share? Call our talk back line and leave your comments. That number is 808-792-8217. Or you can write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiono, and Lillian Song. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello, and our theme music is courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.